0: Welcome
1: to Education International. My name is Elena Schulz-Gimeno, and today I'm here with David Edwards, our Deputy General Secretary. We are celebrating World Teachers Day, David, today, and uh, I am very happy that you're joining us in the celebration on our Ed Voices podcast.
0: Thank you, Elena. It's happy to be here with you
1: so the first thing i wanted to ask you david is because many of our listeners may or may not know what world teachers day is about could you explain what we are actually celebrating today if you want to call it like that
0: sure and i think it's just important to note that a lot of countries for for a very long time have celebrated a national teachers day a teacher appreciation week at the global level we actually are celebrating a, uh, a recommendation that was adopted on October 5th in 1966, which was the International Recommendation on the Status of the Teaching Profession, which basically enshrined the rights and responsibilities for the teaching profession. So every year around this time, Education International, actually since 1994, is when the first one the big celebration was. We join with uh, UNESCO, with the ILO, the International Labor Organization, um, with UNDP, with UNICEF. And we put out a joint statement. We decide a theme to draw attention to a particular aspect that we think is really important, something that's facing teachers or something having to do with teachers.
1: What is this year, Bob?
0: So um, this year, it's teaching in freedom, empowering teachers. These are This is language that's actually taken from the Incheon Declaration uh, from Education 2030, from the Sustainable Development Goals number no. four. And this was something that we, we thought about for a couple of reasons. I said the 1966 recommendation, there's also the 1997 recommendation on the status of higher education teaching personnel, which just sort of just comes right off the lips, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> and that recommendation is having its 20th anniversary right now. And so what we were trying to do was think of a way of being able to, although we'll be celebrating the 97 recommendation or commemorating this, the 97 recommendation all year, um, to try to have some tie-in with the teaching personnel in higher education and the teaching personnel in uh, K-12 education, we call it, or primary and secondary education. So the idea that we would take on uh, talk about academic freedom, professional freedoms, mm-hmm. but also at a time, a difficult time I think in in the world's history um, around political freedoms and uh, individual freedoms. And so we wanna talk about both of both of those things at the K-12 as well as the higher education level.
1: So we're talking about academic freedom to analyze a political situation or current events. What is the role of teachers within academic freedom, but also towards their students maybe in this sense? What would you say? Yeah,
0: you know, from EI's point of view, we see teachers not as sort of instruments that are used to deliver a certain thing or a certain content. But we actually see academic freedom as part and parcel of the larger project towards democratization and the achievement of human rights. And so academic freedom, you can think about it in a couple of different ways. You can think about um, teachers as sort of the, the bulwark between sometimes um, governments who would like to use education as a tool to indoctrinate to maybe... Uh, further strengthen their own power or their own agendas for corporations, maybe a certain non-renewable substance that comes out of the ground that would like everyone to think that uh, climate change is very contested and not, not necessarily scientifically based. So you need teachers who have a professional ethos like doctors have a a Hippocratic oath. Sometimes we say we have the Comenius oath, right? We have this belief in in evidence and truth and speaking truth to power. And so you have teachers um, that are there to help inform uh, students so that they can read and act and understand and synthesize um, what's going on um, based on evidence, based on their own research Um, and make sense of the world um, in a way where you have lots of different groups that are trying to influence them. Teachers, the teaching profession, um, is there uh, working with the students on behalf of democracy for the greater good. Sounds good, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it sounds very, very good (laughs) and and like a very important task indeed. And actually, what do we know about the situation then of academic freedom? Where can people find information about the situation?
0: Yeah, so... um, because of the, the 20th anniversary, we have commissioned some some research to take a look over those past 20 years to say, all right, 1997, 2017, we, had, we said all these great things about um, uh, higher education professors, their academic freedom, tenure. Where are we, you know, 20 years on? Um, how, how have those recommendations been used? How have they not been used? And what's the situation? And so we will be launching a report actually uh, at the Sorbonne. On the sidelines of the UNESCO general Conference at the end of uh, at the end of this month on the thirty first of October um, those of you who are in Paris are more than welcome to get in touch with us so you can come and join um, we'll be talking about some of those trends um we're also going to be putting out around that time some infographics one in particular I think you can see uh, image of the of the world where sort of red yellow green around um, mm-hmm. what's the status for higher education personnel so it's it's not a spoiler to say that things aren't exactly great for, for many higher ed faculty in many parts of the world.
1: Higher education has always been seen as the top notch education everywhere. People think about universities like Harvard and and I think, well, university is just heaven, right? For students, for academics, once you reach university, nothing can happen to you anymore. Would you agree with that?
0: Um I mean, universities have been around for a very long time, right? The model has been around for a very long time. Um, I I think that what we have to understand is that as higher education expanded, as marginalized groups and women and others were coming into higher education um, during that expansion, some countries and some systems made investments in ensuring that the cost of higher education wasn't borne by the individuals but it was borne by the society because the returns were coming back to the society. You had each time a, a more educated populace. Unfortunately once there is a prevalent university model that is expanding which is one of a private university model where the idea is to cut costs however you can. And um, one of the ways of cutting costs is to Hire very very cheap professors called adjunct professors, and trying to squeeze as much as you can out of them. Just this week, in the the Guardian did an investigation in the United States that was showing uh, rising homelessness amongst adjunct professors. It's about a quarter of, of the professors in the U.S. are now on government assistance. So you see less and less tenure track professors, less and less job security, and more of these sort of very precarious very underpaid, very sort of gig economy kind of model um, preparing uh, students in, in higher education. There's a cost for students too because we have issues where adjuncts are not able to advise students. They're not able to write letters of recommendation. They're not on campus very much because they're going to have to hovel together three or four different gigs in order to make oftentimes less than the poverty line. It's not a sustainable model for universities. It's not sustainable because it's based on exploitation. It's, it's it's one that as investment in higher education goes down and higher education becomes more competitive and this idea of rankings and universities and uh, the signaling effects that come from going to certain universities over other universities becomes more prevalent. In the US people go into deep debt to go to university and uh, There's a lot of for-profit universities that don't have any incentive to help people graduate. They don't have an incentive. And there's no balance in terms of the governance of a strong professoriate that can sort of counterbalance the the, uh, profit maximization tendencies of of a more corporate-minded university.
1: So this collective effort you were talking about before, societal collective effort that builds these institutions, that creates them and that puts so much hope in them, in the end is a bit maybe betrayed by certain policies of cutting budgets and putting teachers in a precarious situation. This applies to the rest of the teaching profession as well, or am I wrong? No,
0: absolutely. It's interesting because... There was sort of what they would call the wrong drivers for educational reform that that was made famous by Fullen and Hargreaves about 10 years ago or so, where they were looking at the whole global education reform movement, the deprofessionalization, the standardization, the the privatization, the casualization, all the zations that put us in that situation. Countries that did pretty well in terms of expanding education for... Those marginalized or low social classes, economic classes and groups were those who actually didn't opt to try to turn teachers into robots or try to program them and try to create sort of sticks and carrots to beat them into doing certain things, but it's those that developed a real profession. But we're seeing in a lot of developing countries a, a move away from investing in teachers' professional knowledge in terms of teachers as, as intellectuals, as as experts in their, not just in their craft, their trade, their content area. And we're seeing a push to try to script them out. Here at EI, we talk a lot about this e- issue of the teacher robots.
1: And what is some, a teacher robot? Maybe yeah, you want to explain the, to the audience. The humans? teacher
0: robot, again, so you, want, you hit Harvard, so we should go back to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is basically where Bridge operates out of, Bridge International Academies, and takes these like undergrads fresh out of the university, very little field experience, and they hook them up to a computer. Those computers are hooked up to iPads in uh, poor countries where they are basically telling teachers to walk around the room, erase a board, ask a question, draw a picture. Yeah, they're just by remote control, and it's it's absolutely awful. You know, We're seeing various degrees of that, of that sort of scripting, and the more that you have, the more testing, and the more high-stakes testing and things, and accountability and teaching is becoming more of sort of content delivery and, and assessment mm-hmm. versus the sort of bigger things I was talking about at the beginning of the, of the talk. But, yeah. I mean, that's K-12. I mean, in, in higher ed, I said about the, the prof- professional freedoms, but we also have to think about the political freedoms.
1: That's what I wanted to mention, because when the curriculum is set by a certain government with a certain ideology or with a certain name to tell alternative facts, then the academic freedom becomes even more so important, Right.
0: Absolutely. And, and without the political freedom, without the tenure, without the, 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 the threat of, of jail or disappearance or, or things like that, the chances that you will have public intellectuals and others speaking up becomes less and less. So you know I have my laundry list. Do you want to go on a few examples? <laughs>
1: Maybe, Yes.
0: All right. So how to take Turkey last year? mass dismissal of academics who were critical of the government, all of which were said to be supporting the coup. But many of them were questioning why independent judiciary was being compromised, what was happening to independent newspapers. Zimbabwe, where a union, our affiliate Colas, had a, a right to take an industrial action and the repercussions, the government went way beyond to try to remind them that they, if they do that, they're There will be consequences. Australia, we have our government with its higher education workplace relations requirements that are going to now limit collective bargaining. We have the U.S. issues with taking away collective bargaining and calling it right to work. And um, we have have casualization. Casualization is this term where you move people off of a tenure track. You take away their job security. You Mm -hmm. take away due process. And you make them basically at-will employees. Um, About 75% of teaching in higher ed in the US, U.S. right now is done that way. And that's 80% in Latin America, 40% in Australia, 30% in Canada.
1: Sounds sounds like a really grim picture that you're painting there. But I guess I guess it is important to bring it out in the open. I think this is also the mission of our podcast here to actually convey this type of information to the broader public and to make ourselves heard. Yeah, yeah, I, I,
0: I know, I know. And we, we often get sort of... Um, criticized for being, you know, Debbie Downers when it comes to what's going on. It would be not much nicer if, if we could just celebrate my favorite teacher and send a postcard. And that's, all, that's also important, and I think it's important to communities. But right now in the U.S., you know, we just had the Las Vegas shooting, and uh, a lot of people are putting their hearts and prayers out. But a few are also bringing up the point that no meaningful legislation that would limit gun violence is allowed to come forward. Mm -hmm. And that's a Debbie Downer kind of thing to say, but it's true. And, you know, it's always been our role as this profession to tell it like it is. And so I think we have to to keep doing that.
1: Certainly. But now to wrap it up and maybe send a message out there. What will we need in order to change this? What can be improved?
0: Yeah, I, I think that the first step is to actually know what your rights are and to actually know that this, these recommendations exist, that they provide a, a social professional contract between the profession and, and societies and their communities. And so one thing that I think is important is to get the word out about both the 1966 and the 97, that they have both rights and responsibilities as part of that and that they're universal in their in their scope. I think another thing that's that's important is that societies realize that there are that there are real benefits to their democracies of having academic freedom protected of having teachers professionals that can they can actually speak truth to power like you just said that's that's really important and so that's a that's a conversation that needs to happen i was thinking that when i go to unesco when i speak speaking at unesco it's they have something for journalists for journalists, protecting journalists from attack and the freedom of expression. I don't think it would be that hard. You know, what's a very dangerous profession that's of existential importance to this planet? If we know that, and if we believe that we need to defend the people so that we draw the best and the brightest and the most committed into it and know that someone that societies have their backs, what about some kind of observatory or instrument that looks at and publishes a report an observatory on the freedom of teachers and the, the uh, protection of teachers from a whole variety of interests and political groups I think that that would be part and parcel with that which is already there for the journalists who are performing a fantastically important service to democracy as well right mm-hmm. now you know, I think we need to, we need to not just tweet out I love teachers or I support teachers but when it comes on the ballot, for teachers' rights, their collective rights. We need to be there for them as well.
1: I think that's a very good conclusion. I hope our listeners enjoyed our podcast today and will stay tuned. Thank you very much, David Edwards, for being here with us. And just keep us informed about what happens and what gets decided at UNESCO.
0: Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Enjoy
1: Enjoyed today's podcast? Then don't forget to subscribe. We're on SoundCloud and iTunes.